I have to confess that there are some times in life when I think God is just not fair. He doesn't seem to be doing me right. And uh, the natural reaction to that sort of feeling is to get downright resentful. Now, don't uh, sit there and look so pious because I know you do the same thing. And therefore, I feel free to uh, share my weakness. I'm among friends. But uh, I find at times like that that there is one portion of Scripture that I turn to repeatedly. And uh, it straightens out my perspective. It gives me a new look at the Lord, helps me to see him in uh, the way I ought to uh, perceive him. And it's the parable that we want to look at this morning in Matthew 20. I hope as a result of our study this morning, it will be as helpful to you as it has been to me in the past. This, um, this parable in Matthew 20 just doesn't seem to fit. It seems to be misplaced. The first time you read it, it doesn't seem to follow the flow of Matthew's argument, and uh, we wonder why it's here. One of the problems is that the paragraph division at chapter 20 is in the wrong place. I've long believed that uh, most of these paragraph divisions were the result of some monk during the medieval period who was copying the scriptures in some dark, cold monastery cell. And every time he sneezed, he inadvertently made a paragraph division. Uh, they just don't seem to fit in some cases. Some are well-placed, some are not. As you may know, the paragraph divisions are not part of the text. They were added much later during the Middle Ages as, uh, as a helpful guide to finding our way around in the Scriptures. But often they're not in the right place, and this is, this is a case in point. The paragraph division here actually obscures the meaning of the parable. If you look at the first word of the of the parable in Matthew 20, it begins with the conjunction for. For usually denotes an explanation. The parable explains something. What it explains is the statement that Jesus makes in 1930 when he says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And then if you notice the last verse of this section, chapter 20, verse 16, that phrase is repeated. Thus the last shall be first and the first last. So the expression brackets the parable. It's as though Jesus makes a statement the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And then he tells the parable, and then he repeats the statement as though to say, this is what I meant when I said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So the parable is an explanation of the warning note given in 1930. Now we need to go back further in chapter 19 to know what the warning note is all about. There in chapter 19 you have a contrast between the rich young ruler and the apostles. As we saw last week, the rich young ruler was unwilling to give up his wealth. His wealth had him. The problem was not what he possessed, but what possessed him. He, he didn't want to give up his money. But the disciples were willing to give up everything. And Peter makes that point. We've left everything to follow you. What shall we have? So there's an, there's an explicit contrast there, or comparison made between the rich young ruler and Peter as he represents the uh, apostles. Now, Peter raises the question that we often ask. I have given up everything. What shall I have? In other words, what's in it for me? And then Jesus answers, and his answer follows, beginning with verse 28 of chapter 19, and actually runs through verse 16 of chapter 20. Now, he answers in two ways. First, he answers directly Peter's question, what, what's in it for me? What shall we have? And the Lord says, in effect, much in every way. God's not unaware of what you've given up. You, you haven't really given up anything God is going to give. But what the Lord detected in Peter's question was that uh, attitude that you and I often have, that God owes us something. 
that somehow our righteousness puts God in debt to us. He's obligated in some way to give us something because of what we've given. Look at what I've given up. Look how righteous I've been. Look how much I've prayed this past week. Look how I've dealt with this habit. Therefore, God ought to give me some good things. I ought to be rewarded for it. Now, again, don't look so pious because I know that's what you do because I know that's what I do. And we're all in this thing together, you know. Now, the parable is here uh, in order to explain the warning that Jesus addresses to Peter. He says, that sort of attitude, Peter, may disqualify you. You may think you're first, but really you'll be last. It's sort of the old tortoise and hare matter again. The smart money goes on the, on the hare, but the tortoise wins. And that's what he's saying to Peter. You may think you're first, but this attitude may disqualify you, so you miss out. That's the point of the warning. And the parable is here to explain the warning. Now let's look at the parable. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out again about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you too go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. They also received each one a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful or is it not right for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Thus the last shall be first and the first last. Now this is another of those the kingdom of heaven is like parables that we saw in Matthew 13. And as we saw in that portion of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is the mystery form of God's kingdom. In other words, it's the period between the first and second comings of, of Christ. We would say the church age. It's the new look that the kingdom has as a result of Christ's lordship over his church. Now, I say that simply because I want us all to understand that this parable is for us. We're the laborers in the field. We're in the parable. Now, there's a lot of local color and culture here in this parable that it would be helpful to understand. The first is that uh, the grape harvest in Palestine took place right at the uh, usually late uh, summer, early fall, just before the so-called early rains came. And uh, they had to get the harvest in. When the grapes ripened, at the crucial time, before these rains came or the harvest would be spoiled. And so uh, time was, uh, was important. They had to work fast. I can remember when my father used to get our hay down and then he'd get a newscast uh, concerning the weather and 
the rain would be coming and he would uh, commandeer the whole family, my mother, my sister, my cousin Mildred who lived with us, uh, all the dogs and cats and everybody else, and they'd go out in the field and try to bale the hay and get it in the barn before the rains would come. That's the sort of thing that's going on here. They have to hurry. They don't have much time. And so the landowner goes out into the market in order to find workers to send into the field. Now, we need to identify some of the elements in the parable. The landowner, who is the boss, he's the owner of the vineyard, is God the Father. The laborers are, first of all, the apostles, because they're the ones to whom this parable was first addressed. But uh, secondarily, it applies to us. We also are laborers that the landowner sends out into the field. The vineyard is, first of all, the nation of Israel, because that was the sphere of ministry that the Lord gave to the apostles. But uh, for us, it applies to any field of endeavor, any sphere of ministry that God gives to you and me. The foreman here, although he's not important to the story, is probably the Lord himself. At least if we want to tie down that, uh, that term, it may refer to the Lord. The denarius is simply a day's wages. It's a fair wage for a field hand. It would be equivalent to 25 or $30 uh, uh, a day for that sort of labor in our time. So it's a fair wage. It's a good wage. It's the sort of thing that... Uh, with which a farmhand could take care of his uh, of the needs of his family. The landowner goes out into the market and he contracts with this first group of laborers early in the morning. And we're not given the exact time, but it was as early as possible, probably at sunup, 6 a.m. in the morning. He goes down to the marketplace and he begins to contract with uh, idle workmen that are waiting there to get uh, get jobs. The market served as a sort of labor pool. It was the labor exchange. That's where workmen went to find, uh, find uh, labor for the day. So he contracts with this first group to go into the field for a denarius a day. He makes an agreement with them, a contractual agreement, and they go to work. Then the third hour, which would be about 9 o'clock in the morning, they started reckoning from 6 o'clock in the morning, about the third hour or 9 o'clock in the morning, he arranges for another group to go, and then he goes again at noon, the sixth hour, and then again three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour. Now, with the second wave of workmen, he doesn't make any agreement other than to say, I'll give you what's right. It's important to note. He doesn't agree that they're to work for a denarius. He just says, I'll, I'll do what's right. You can trust me. Pay you what you're worth. Finally, at the 11th hour, which would be 5 o'clock in the evening, just before quitting time, he finds another group of idle workmen and he sends them out into the vineyard. He doesn't say anything to them about their wages. He doesn't even tell them that I'll give you what's right, although we can assume that he made a similar arrangement with them. They go out and work one hour. At 6 o'clock, the whistle goes off. It's quitting time. And uh, they gather to receive their wages. Now, in those days, according to Mosaic law, a workman was paid at the end of every day. That was required. So they queue up at the pay table, and the uh, foreman is the paymaster, and he starts paying off the workmen. They start in inverse order, start the payment in reverse order. You start with the last group first. The reason being, uh, in the parable, the Lord wants to show the reaction of the first group to go out. So they start with the last group, and these men receive their pay. They've worked one hour, mind you, and they get one denarius, a full day's wage. 
Those at the back of the line who were the first group to go out do a little instant uh, computation and they go, ha, let's see, one hour is worth one denarius, 12 hours is worth 12 denarii. But uh, they're in for a shock because the next group, they went out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon who have worked for two hours or three hours, they get one denarius. The group that went out at noon get one denarius. The group that went out uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning, they get one. And finally, this last group who, as they say, have borne the heat of the day, go to receive their pay and they get one denarius. And note what they say. Verse 10, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. And they also received each one a denarius. When, and when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. And he answered and said to one of them, and I think probably here the Lord looked at Peter, because he especially wanted Peter to get the import of this parable. He answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious or I evil because I am good? The statement, the, your eye evil, is your eye evil is an old Semitic idiom for a malicious look. The New American Standard has translated jealousy here, but the idea is really one of hostility. If you look up the term in the Old Testament, you'll find it's used that way frequently. These people were mad. They were resentful. They had their noses out of joint. They had worked all day. They had taken the heat. And they only got one denarius. The problem originated with the thought that came when the payoff began when we read, they thought we ought to receive more. Now, you see, we often feel the same way. We feel that God is indebted to us because we've taken the heat. We've been under special pressure. Our circumstances have been hard. Life has been unjust to us, and therefore God ought to get us, give us more. And when we don't receive more, we get resentful. We're angry at God. We think we ought to have more. Now you have to recall that this parable was first addressed to the apostles and it was primarily for their benefit. These were the men who quite literally took the heat. They gave up everything. They left their lucrative businesses. They left their homes and families. We don't know uh, in detail how much any of them actually left behind, but they abandoned everything. They were wholeheartedly committed to the Lord. And from that point on, life never ran smoothly for them. With the possible exception of John, every one of them died violent deaths. Peter saw his wife murdered before his eyes, and then he was crucified upside down. And they of all men might feel resentful because they had left everything and they felt that God had not given what was rightfully theirs. This parable was first and, f and foremost for them. So they would see 
that life is not fair. That's the first principle that I derive from this passage. Life is not fair. We hear from Joshua time and time again that life is not fair. He comes home from school. Carol says, all right, time to do your homework. He says, that's not fair. I've been in school all day. I need a break. Carol says, do your homework. He says, that's not fair. Now, we used to reason with him. You know, there are all sorts of adult arguments to convince a child that what you're doing is fair and reasonable. If you do your homework now, then you can go out and play and you get it off your mind and whatnot. But we've stopped trying to argue with Joshua about what's fair. Carolyn's response now in mine is just, well, life's not fair, Joshua. Sit down and do your homework. <laughs> I hope you've learned that. There's some of you here who have, have, really have a very easy life. Your spouse loves you. You have a good job. You're healthy. There are others here who are in poor health. Your jobs are not satisfying, or you may not even have a job. Some of you are going bankrupt. Your spouses don't love you. It's easy to think it isn't fair and to get angry with God. But life isn't fair. And really, it's a good thing that it isn't. You know, we like, we like the idea of justice when some reward accrues to us, when we do what's right and we're rewarded for it. But we don't like the idea of justice when we do unrighteous things. There's a great uh, line in one of C.S. Lewis's books, Till We Have Faces, the heroine there, the young lady, says to the old queen, Oh, are not the gods just? She's concerned about justice in the world. She says, are not the gods just? And the old queen says, oh, no, my dear. Where would we be if he were? Suppose God uh, decided to judge every sin that you and I commit immediately with an equal and a commensurate judgment. Every time we told a lie, our tongue would shrivel up. Every time I drove 70 miles an hour on the freeway, my foot would uh, wither the foot that works the accelerator. You see, we don't like that concept of justice. I remember my father telling once of a church fight. A man stood at the front of the church and he was very angry. He said, I demand my rights! I demand my rights! And this old Scotchman sitting on the back, in the back row stood up and he said, And what's that you say? He says, I demand my rights! He says, hey, you want your rights, do you? If you had your rights, you'd be in hell. That's where you rightfully belong. And see, he's right. He's right. If we had our rights, that's where we all would be. Suppose I had the power to make a little man out of wood, whittle him out of a piece of wood, and I had the power to give him life. And the first thing he did was turn around and sass me. I don't know about you, but I'd cuff the thing in the mouth and throw it in the fire. <coughs> You see what I'm saying? We don't really deserve anything except hell. That God gives us anything at all is because he's gracious. He's good. But he's not indebted to us. We haven't incurred, he hasn't incurred some debt on our behalf. X amount of righteousness doesn't demand X amount of reward. That's not the way it works. And as he puts it here, don't I have the right to do as I please? with what is mine. Doesn't he have that right? Isn't it his prerogative to grant to some people an easy life and to others a hard life? Doesn't he have that right? 
Can any of us say that's not right? And see, what we need to realize is that God himself is implicated in some sense in the unfairness in the world. It's very clear from this parable. It's the landowner who subjects that first group of laborers to the heat. He, he permits them. He sends them out to labor 12 hours in the sun. And uh, if you look at Mark's parallel of this passage in, in Matthew, Jesus' statement of reward to Peter, Mark makes a very uh, interesting inclusion. Mark Matthew, for some reason, leaves it out. But apparently, what Jesus actually said to Peter was, there's no one who's, uh, who's left everything who will not receive a hundredfold in terms of brothers and sisters and children and farms and persecution. Isn't that interesting? And uh, in the book of Job, when, when Satan appears the second time before the Lord's throne to give an accounting for the dreadful things that he's done to Job, he's taken his family away and, and his home has been destroyed, his business is bankrupt, he's ruined. And uh, the Lord says to Satan, Satan, you moved me against my servant Job. He's big enough to accept the responsibility for all that happens to us. Now, that's a mystery. I don't understand all of that. I know God is good. And I know that sooner or later it's all going to work out in a way that his goodness will be seen and shown. We may not see it until we see him, but I know it all works together to produce the good thing that God is after. I used to watch my mother make needlepoint, and I would sit on the floor playing with my trucks or something, and I'd look on the backside of the little frame she was working on, and there didn't seem to be any design or purpose to anything she was doing. And I'd ask her, what are you making? And she'd turn the thing around, it'd be a swan or a bird or a fish or a flower or something, and the design would be there, but I couldn't see it from my perspective. We can't see the good thing God's working out. We know it's, it's all working out. According to his wisdom and his goodness, it's all going to work in the end. But in the meantime, God himself seems to be implicated in the unfairness of life. He accepts the responsibility for it. And a part of maturity is recognizing that's so. It's recognizing the nearness of God in every circumstance. That everything is screened through his loving hands. Nothing is really out of control. And then the third thing we have to realize is that God has the right to do with us as he pleases. He really has that right. He has the right to subject some to hardship and not others. He has the right to give some a good home and to deprive others of that benefit. He has the right to give good health and deprive others. I don't understand why. He just does. You see, what gets us in trouble is this feeling, I deserve more. I ought to have more than I'm having. Because look what I've done. I prayed for my husband for 15 years. God's got to come through. But there are no guarantees that 15 years worth of prayer is going to save your husband. You won't find that promise anywhere in Scripture. You may be called to live out your entire life in a household where your husband never responds to the claims of Christ. He may never return your love. But God has the right to do as he pleases with what is his. And believe me, rest and peace comes from submission to God's will. Knowing that it's right. Knowing that he gives me just what I need. Putting away the thought that I have to have more. Because God is not at all indebted to us. He doesn't have to give us anything. Oh, he will give. But not because 
it's required or not because he's indebted to us. I have a good friend here in the congregation. I've just met him recently who uh, became a Christian some months back. Fine, uh, attractive young man, fine athlete, had great promise. He discovered three weeks ago that he has a form of arthritis that is slowly crippling him. And uh, within a matter of years, he'll be confined to a wheelchair. And we say, that's not right. God's not doing him right. Now, I don't understand why God permits these things. All I know is that he has the right to do as he pleases with what's his. And our response is simply to submit, to say, you're right. I've had people come into my office over the last few weeks and say, I have lived with this man or this woman for 20 years, and to the best of my ability, I have been godlike, and he hasn't responded. I've had it. I'm through. It's over. I'm leaving. Without realizing, you see, what, what underlies that attitude is, look, I put in 20 years of hard times. Now, God ought to reward me by saving my husband. Or, I'm bailing out. But you see, it doesn't work like that. The payoff will come in the end. In the meantime, God calls us to be what he's called us to be. To be godlike, to be patient, trustful, restful. Right where we are. So, uh, if you like, I, from time to time, feel that we deserve more. The antidote is to remember what the Lord told the apostles. Don't I have the right to do as I please with what is mine. Let's pray. Good Father, we thank you for the gracious gift of yourself to us that provides everything that we need. That is enough. Deliver us from this feeling that that somehow you are in debt to us, that you have to give us a reward because of our righteousness. Enable us to accept what you give us as as your will, rest in it, trust you, and believe you. Rely upon your resources to face whatever circumstances lie ahead. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.